Shattered Bonds, a podcast that tells the story of a family's journey to redemption, a family that has been torn apart by secrets, lies, betrayal, and violence, a family that has to confront the past and the present and find a way to heal and reconnect. It's an exploration of the human condition, of the power of love and forgiveness, of the resilience of the human spirit. It's a podcast that will make you laugh, cry, think, and feel. This is part 10, A Born Again Awakening. Doris wakes in the middle of the night, the words, born again, on her lips. The TV is on at the foot of the bed, and there's a televangelist on screen preaching to the near-empty room. When you renounce your sins, he is saying, when you bathe in the water of righteousness. She sits up dizzy, unsure of where she is. Her breathing is shallow, panicked. Deep inside her lungs, there's only blackness, the tissue singed, crackly, like the outside of a marshmallow cooked too long over a campfire. She reaches reflexively for her oxygen line, slips it on over her ears, placing the plastic nubs under her nose. Some kind of hotel room, she thinks, looking around. She catches sight of herself in the mirror wall, and for a minute believes she is not alone, that she is sharing the room with some old lady. But then she realizes the old lady is her, that this is what her life has come to, displacement, disorientation. I'm a refugee, she thinks, a wandering gypsy. She puts on her glasses, reaches for the water glass that sits beside the bed. It is filled with red wine, like some kind of Jesus miracle, as if the televangelist has reached through the screen and performed an act of transmutation. Sipping it, there's that familiar taste, the oak-dark swallow of purple tannins. She gets up, goes to the bathroom to pee. Coming back, she trips over her suitcase, goes down hard. She lies on the floor, dazed. Please, God, she thinks. Don't let anything be broken. She moves slowly, one limb at a time. But it is just her pride that is hurt. She sits up, one hand on her suitcase. Inside, she can feel a hard, boxy shape. For the life of her, she can't figure out what it is. So she opens the suitcase, and the minute she sees the wooden box, she knows. His ashes. These are his ashes. The recognition takes her breath away. Forty years, and this is what's left. A box of sand. Gristle. Born again. The words come back to her, the ones she woke up with. It's not hard to understand why so many people have surrendered to the idea. A second chance. The opportunity to renounce your past and start over. To her, God has always been a bully, a thinly veiled threat. God is the boogeyman whose name is thrown around to subdue and intimidate. His wrath, his vengeance. She caresses the box that holds her husband's ashes. They met at a restaurant. She was there on a date with another boy. What was his name? They were sitting in a booth at a restaurant in Little Italy, and Joe came over to the table. Excuse me, miss, he said. You have a phone call. Puzzled, she slid from the booth and followed him back into the kitchen, but just inside the door he turned and smiled at her. He was tall and handsome with a dimpled chin. His eyes were sparkling and blue. I lied, he said. There's no phone call. I just wanted to meet you. It was hot in the kitchen, a stifling August night made worse by the humidity of boiling water, 
and she swooned, literally. She had never swooned before in her life, but there's no other word for what happened in that moment. He reached out a hand to steady her. Careful there, he said. So could I get your phone number? She gave it to him. Of course she gave it to him. Then went back to the table, back to the date. It was the most mysterious and romantic thing that had ever happened to her. The rest of the night was a dull blur in comparison. Joe called the next day. They met for coffee. He told her the story, how he'd been out to dinner with some friends after a show. How he'd seen her sitting there with her date, and she was so beautiful. How he turned to his friends and said, watch this. They sat at a cafe in the West Village, and he told Doris about his life. He came from Ohio, a tight-lipped Protestant family. He'd been in the army. Now he worked in advertising, inventing log lines for dishwashers. But who cares about me, he said. You're the doll. The waiter came by the table. He ordered a beer. She asked for an ice cream sundae. With chocolate and nuts and whipped cream, she said. The ice cream came and she ate it like it was her last meal. She was as skinny as a pencil. He had two beers, watched her go. I like a girl who's not afraid to pack it away, he said. She was a girl who'd been raised by her aunt, a girl who'd spent two decades living a lie, unwanted, unrecognized. Half the time she felt invisible, and now this man was watching her eat ice cream on the corner of Bleecker Street and Bank. And the way he looked at her, she felt seen, maybe for the first time. Like he was looking through her skin into her meaty brown organs. Like he had x-ray eyes, and he could see everything, every secret, every insecurity. She felt like bolting from the restaurant, dashing out into traffic. It was 1961. 1961. Thinking of it now, she can't believe those numbers ever went together. New York was a different city then. Lower, wider, a brick labyrinth. Even her memories of it are in black and white. It's amazing how the past recedes. You can't hold on to a second of it. In 1961, Joe Henry sat in a cafe on the corner of Bleecker and Bank and lit a cigarette. He sat back, crossed his legs, and laughed smoke. He was the man she would marry eight months later on an April afternoon at City Hall. His teeth were white and straight, and he smiled at her the whole time she ate. Truly in his life, he had never seen anything more beautiful. In the hotel, she rises unsteadily to her feet. She's almost 65 years old now. If she were a comic book, she'd be vintage. If she were a car, she'd be classic. If she were a song, she'd be a golden oldie. Her hair is frizzy. Her bones are kindling. She sits on the edge of her bed holding the box of ashes in her lap. She is afraid of it, but she can't put it down. It is her own death, but she needs to be near it. She is too old to cry, she thinks, all dried up. Instead, there's just numbness. More than anything at this moment, she wants a cigarette. So stupid, she thinks, to be thrown out of a hotel. How humiliating. And for what? One lousy smoke? It's fascist, that's what it is. Absurd. But what do people expect? She's not strong enough to take care of herself, not strong enough to resist the temptation. The cigarettes will kill her, sure, but what's the point in sticking around? 
There she was in the plush interior of her room at the Hotel Bel Air. A hotel ten times classier than this dump. With tasteful floral curtains and a puffy leather sofa. And all she wanted before bed was a cigarette. Just a drag. Two puffs. And then she could turn in for the night. Is that so much to ask? Something to steady the nerves. She took the pack from its hiding place. Looked around for a place to smoke. She could have gone outside, she supposed. But it was a long walk to the elevator, and then across the lobby and out onto the patio, and she was tired, having traveled all day. All she was going to have was one puff, maybe two. So she stepped into the bathroom, where there was a sign on the sink that clearly read, no smoking, and a smoke detector on the ceiling. So she went back into the bedroom and opened the window. Maybe if she kind of half-leaned out to exhale... She could just smoke in her room like a civilized person. This whole crusade against smokers was ridiculous anyway. It was a charade, a witch hunt. She didn't live to be this old just to be persecuted by a bunch of humorless zealots. She put her thumb and forefinger into the pack, rooted out a cigarette. Her mouth watered a little at the dark scent of tobacco that rose from the foil interior. She put the cigarette between her lips. How many times has she done this in the last 50 years? Thousands, literally hundreds of thousands, an average of 30 cigarettes a day for over 50 years. That's an easy half million cigarettes. Half a million. It is the single defining gesture of her life, to place a cigarette between her lips, to light it. She has done this on five of the seven continents of the world, has done it at sea level, at 35,000 feet, on an airplane, in a desert. She has smoked a cigarette in the capital of every major European country. Cigarettes are her landmarks. They are the second hand on the clock of her life. Out of the thousand-odd pictures that have been taken of her in the last 50 years, only seven show her without a cigarette, either in her mouth or between her fingers. Only seven. She flicked the lighter, cheap, disposable, and a blue flame sprung up, licked the tip of her smoke. With the first puff, she knew she had done the right thing as nicotine was absorbed by the soft tissue of her lungs, as chemicals in her brain were triggered, releasing a flood of relaxing endorphins. Sure, there was tightness, a certain sense of suffocation, but it was manageable. Can you blame me, she thinks, for wanting a moment of peace, serenity? This is what cigarettes were for her, a respite, a moment out of time where everything felt balanced. She exhaled a cloud of smoke, placed the cigarette to her lips. How many times during Joe's illness had she taken refuge in a cloud of blue-tinged smoke, camouflaged by it, hiding behind a literal smokescreen from all the pain, all the humorless projections of disaster? In the end, what was left that resembled her old sweet love? In the end, what remained of the vibrant, intelligent man who'd smiled at her while she ate ice cream? He was a shell, a tenth-generation Xerox, degraded, smudged, illegible. Above her head, the smoke alarm started wailing. The volume of it, the sudden shriek, almost gave her a heart attack. And for a few moments, she had no idea what was happening. It felt like the end of the world, the dire sonic beeping of the apocalypse. Then it hit her, what it was, and she threw the cigarette out the window, started waving at the air. 
If she could stop the sound, if she could silence it quickly, maybe no one would notice. Never mind it was just before eleven, and the hotel was as silent as a tomb. Never mind that the piercing shriek of the alarm could probably be heard in the basement. She was convinced that if she could silence it fast, she could escape detection. What she didn't count on was the fact that in a control room somewhere, a light had gone on that had corresponded to her room. What she didn't count on was that at the first cry of the alarm, an automated call went out to the dispatch center of the local fire department. And that as she waved frantically at the ceiling with a folded magazine, fire engines were already on their way. When they arrived, when seven burly firemen, in heavy all-weather gear, carrying oxygen tanks and axes, burst into a room, they found it empty. They were accompanied by the hotel manager, a fastidious man in a designer's suit who wrung his hands and fretted. He told them to be careful, please. The drapes were delicate. The furniture was antique. The firemen checked the bathroom, looked under the bed. But there was no sign of Doris Henry, the guest who had checked into room 314 this evening, accompanied by her eldest son. It was the hotel manager who noticed the thin plastic line leading from the boxy oxygen machine as it threaded across the brown Berber carpet and into the closet. It was the hotel manager who stepped forward calling, Mrs. Henry? Mrs. Henry? And opened the door to the closet, only to find Doris Henry crouched down behind the ironing board. Wide-eyed, terrified, her oxygen line looped over her ears and under her nose. She had forgotten she was wearing it had lit a cigarette an inch from the flow of pure flammable air. Dumb luck was all that had kept her from going up in flames. Dumb luck and the strong dispersing wind from the air conditioner. Gazing up at the gang of hulking firemen, Doris Henry was convinced that they were the gatekeepers of hell sent to bring her down. As they reached in to help her up, as the paramedic stepped forward to check her vitals, she told herself that these men had come to kidnap her, to take her hostage, she was certain her sons had called the authorities and had her committed, that her life from here on out would be lived in institutions. Doris Henry had left the confines of rational thought. She was born again into a world of confusion and paranoia. All the recognizable markers had been removed, and she was, for the first time in years, at sea, truly unmoored. And everything that came after threatened to be unrecognizable. Born again. What a beautiful sentiment. Who doesn't want a second chance? All we have to do to get there is renounce the past and beg forgiveness.